If journalists or business moguls want to look into the crystal ball and understand the future of media, they often look to Jonah Peretti. The boyish 47-year-old started the Huffington Post and then BuzzFeed about 15 years ago, and both have been trendsetters. So Peretti turned heads a few years ago when he gave an interview that called on digital media executives to consolidate, to merge, so they could more effectively stand up to Google and Facebook. As a result, you saw Vox, Vice, and Group 9 heeding the call, going into deal-making mode. But BuzzFeed and Peretti were kind of on the sidelines. That's all beginning to change. This is The 411. I'm Corey Weinberg. In this week's episode, I'll speak to my colleagues Jessica Tunkel and Sahil Patel about BuzzFeed and its leader. They just wrote a revealing story about how this famous digital media brand is at a crossroads. And M&A and consolidation, it's a big part of the story. Then, if you look to the skies these days, you might just see an Amazon airplane. The e-commerce giant has quietly beefed up its air shipping fleets in order to get everyone the stuff that they want within a day or two. So I'll speak to Paris Martineau about the implications. The digital media startup BuzzFeed has long been led by its cerebral CEO and founder, Jonah Peretti. Now Peretti is preparing the company for a new era. It's planning to go public through a SPAC, making BuzzFeed the first of its generation of media companies to go public. And the SPAC merger could include a twist, as BuzzFeed is also looking to buy media and entertainment company Complex Networks. My colleagues Jessica Tunkel and Sahil Patel wrote a piece this week on Peretti's latest efforts to turn BuzzFeed into a holding company for media brands. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey, Corey. So let's first take a little bit of a step back on BuzzFeed. This was once a high-flying digital media startup. It was valued at like $1.7 billion in 2016. Uh, it hasn't been easy to sustain that momentum. You both have followed this company for a while. How do you view the BuzzFeed story? Are, are they a success story right now? Are they a disappointment? Where do you land, Jessica? I would say I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic. A lot has to happen for them to be considered a success. But given where they were a couple of years ago, or even a year ago, where a lot of people were saying, where is BuzzFeed in all of this? You saw a lot of their competitors, you know, just to take a step back, Jenner Peretti, the CEO of BuzzFeed, as you said, he made this declaration that digital media companies need to come together. There needs to be a roll-up. BuzzFeed's in a good position to, you know, do that. And we need to do that to be able to get better rates from the likes of Facebook and Google. And then everyone else partnered up, right? Vice bought Refinery29, Vox bought New York Magazine, Group 9 bought a company called Pop Sugar, and everyone was like, what happened to BuzzFeed? Have they been left out? And so now it looks like they're making their move. And if they do all of this, it, you know, the deals they've done, whether it's buying HuffPo um, and, or buying Complex, like they're interesting deals. They're not like huge, splashy deals. But I think that he's like quietly making his moves to position BuzzFeed and put it in a good position. I would say it's, it's kind of reflective of 
broadly where digital media is right now. There was, you know, a few years where you had all these companies getting high valuations. They were going to be these massive disruptive brands that were going to change everything from traditional publishing to television. And it was going to usher in a new future. Uh, but most of these companies were also almost entirely reliant on advertising and especially digital advertising. And as we've seen a lot and also an increasing amount of digital advertising is going to the tech giants, Facebook, Google, Amazon more recently. It's not going to the media companies as much. And so reality kind of set in. Maybe, maybe some of these companies should not have had these massive valuations when their businesses were not actually that healthy or sustainable, at least at that point, to support that, right? So I think BuzzFeed's almost, um, I want to call it the only one, but it is definitely one of the poster children of what we've seen as digital media has kind of evolved over the past few years from sort of the peak to a more realistic place right now. Uh, Jessica, you've profiled him in the past. Among the people who know Jonah best, <laughs> what what's he known for? How, how can we as readers and listeners understand Jonah Peretti. I mean, Jonah's really known for like his prognosticating about the future of the business, particularly the digital media business. I mean, you know, we note in the story that his happy place is like pouring over his computer, looking at all the data, figuring out what the trends are with why people are, you know, why certain things go viral. You know, that's how BuzzFeed came about was like they did the viral list and the listicles. And so that's his happy place. I mean, I would say the biggest criticism over Jonah of Jonah over the years has been that he's too focused on the macro and that he should have started focusing more on the details sooner in terms of making money, profitability. You know, he was running the company like a startup, whereas the company was transitioning into needing to be more of a sustainable business and wasn't making money for a while. They were profitable last year. Um, so I think that has changed, but that is, you know, kind of been the knock on Jonah historically. But he does seem to be that it, from reading your piece, it seems like he is cobbling together an interesting strategy, perhaps. And at least with it's going public, it will have more cash on its balance sheet. And it's trying to do this acquisition of complex. Sahil, what's the rationale for doing this deal and what would it do to BuzzFeed as a business? Would it grow it significantly or not? One thing that Complex has done, I would argue pretty decently effectively over the past few years, is it's actually built a a diversified revenue portfolio that a lot of these media companies have been talking about, especially in the last three, four years, right? It goes from everything from, let's start with, with commerce, right? Uh, Complex has had a business where it sells products directly uh, or through retail to customers, right? Uh, they have the show called Hot Ones, which is pretty popular on YouTube. And that has led to a business where they're actually doing hot sauce sales and getting a cut of the uh, commerce revenue from that, right? They operate this event called ComplexCon, where you have tens of thousands of people going to these massive convention centers and you have all these brands, whether it's like niche, like really cool watch brands or streetwear culture brands, you know, selling them stuff there. There's panels, there's interviews, there's things to buy. So they have built a, a legacy to a degree of being able to do different types of commerce. So, and that's very helpful for a company like BuzzFeed, which has publicly talked up how much they see commerce as their future. And Complex definitely helps accelerate those efforts for BuzzFeed. 
Right. That makes sense. You need need a bunch of buckets of revenue. I I think I've heard Jonah say that before. One one deal he did pull off was being able to wrangle HuffPo from Verizon. And you detail in your story this week just how he was able to do that. It, you know, it seems like he was essentially able to take advantage of, you know, a telco that didn't really want to invest in media anymore. Um, but how do you get that deal done, Jessica? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I don't think you had to be like a psychic to see that Verizon was going to end up selling that business. Like when Hans Vestberg came on, who's their CEO now, when he came on a few years ago, he was pretty he was pretty clear in telegraphing that he wasn't interested in buying media companies in the same way that the former CEO had been. Having said that, Jonah got there early, right? Like short, a few months after... Hans started in 2018. Jonah reached out to him. They developed a relationship. A few months after that, in 2019, Jonah said, hey, I want to buy the business. And he had, you know, he had a good pitch. He was one of the founders of HuffPo. He understood how to make that content attractive to advertisers, how to make it viral, how HuffPo would fit in with BuzzFeed. Like, it was a very logical combination. And he was so convincing (laughs) that Verizon basically gave him the business. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, BuzzFeed did not spend any cash for for HuffPo. You know, uh, Verizon agreed to buy a minority stake in BuzzFeed at a valuation of 1.7, which was what the height of its height valuation was. You know, they also spent, you know, tens of millions of dollars, I was told, towards any future liabilities BuzzFeed might have from the acquisition. And so it was a pretty good deal. It was kind of a win-win for BuzzFeed. That's interesting. I mean, I'm also, obviously that deal came with, you know, layoffs. BuzzFeed grew a huge editorial newsroom over the years. It's had to lay some of those people off. Where does journalism fit into the future of BuzzFeed. It just won't appeal its surprise. Is that still front and center for the company? I think so. I mean, look, there have been a lot of people over the years who've said to Jonah, like, really? Like, this, this, it's very, as we all know, it's very hard to make money off of news, particularly if you don't have a subscription model, which Jonah does not believe that all news should be under a subscription, right? He has, like, played around with membership. But the thing about Jonah also is, like, he really believes in journalism. There are things he believes in, whether... For better or for worse, you know, I don't think he would care if BuzzFeed News made money or not. Um, I don't think it does make money. I'm not, you know, but I think that he's committed to the news element of it. I mean, the other thing. So, I mean, right now, the HuffPost newsroom and the BuzzFeed newsroom are separate and they're both operating independently. I think that that will probably continue to be the case. Um, I also think that from an advertising standpoint, they're two very different audiences, right? HuffPost is an older, more affluent audience than BuzzFeed. So I think that it's attractive to have them as separate entities and an advertiser can, you know, do a bundle buy on them. As you all set out in your story, I think everyone's seen media consolidation coming for a while and you guys have documented it for a while. It's just kind of maybe come in spurts. I don't know. That's sort of the nature of MA a lot of times, I feel like, is um it doesn't always benefit the acquirer. And so it takes a little while for deals to happen. And maybe there aren't as many deals as you might expect. But um this is a good piece and uh you know I'm sure we'll be talking more about this topic. Thanks, Corey. Thanks so much, Corey. <laughs> All right. Thanks guys. We 
happen to love logistics here at The Information, and perhaps no reporter has covered this more than our Amazon reporter, Paris Martineau, who has been on the show before to talk about Amazon's long-haul trucking program, its middle-mile program, last mile. All the miles, really. All the miles. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, vehicles that span thousands, hundreds of miles, thousands of miles. This week, Paris, you wrote about Amazon Air their flight cargo program. And I think the key question in your piece is, will Amazon start offering air cargo delivery to other companies? Um, Why were you interested in this question? Why did you start digging into Amazon Air? Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, I've been digging into the aspects of Amazon's distribution and shipping network for a while, um, mainly focusing on the stuff on the ground and decided to train my head up to the skies a bit. Because, I mean, Amazon is making a lot of investments in every aspect of transportation. And I realized that one part of this that has gotten a lot of attention in the media is Amazon Prime drones, which is called Prime Air. But those are a long way away from ever being in a sky near you. And meanwhile, Amazon's air fleet has grown a considerable amount in the last five or six years. And over the last year and a half, which has just been a massive period for growth for all sections of Amazon's transportation operations. But during this period, Amazon has increased its air fleet considerably. It has more than 70 planes now um, flying between all these different air hubs that it owns at cargo airports. It's fascinating. I feel like this gets at a a thought that I often have when thinking about Amazon, because as you said, it's it's gone through such a period of growth over the past several years, particularly it's been acute during the pandemic. But at a certain point, you're like, Amazon's been around for a long time. It's been really big forever. Um, It's been in our lives for a long time. Why now is Amazon starting to invest more into leasing or buying airplanes to ship packages? Well, I mean, it all really goes back to uh, that prime promise of free, fast, two-day shipping, which a couple of years ago, Amazon announced it was going to change a bit and try and provide one or same-day shipping across the U.S., one-day shipping nationwide and same-day shipping for a lot of major metropolitan areas. This sounds like a great kind of consumer play, but underneath, there's a lot that has to happen to make that even possible. The reason why Amazon was kind of able to achieve such market penetration was originally it's free and fast uh, two-day shipping for Prime members. And how it achieved that is by growing in the transportation sector, having all these different warehouses close to where people live, and then moving inventory between them as quickly as possible based on what its algorithms and predictions uh, believed people would order. But in order to get from two or three day shipping to one, you have to not only be able to predict what people are going to buy and move it around the U.S., but you need to be able to, in cases where, I don't know, Corey, you order, decide you want to order 30 size uh, 30 jeans all at once in red, which the Amazon warehouse near you doesn't have in stock, it needs to be able to find all of those colors of jeans in its various warehouses and send them on an overnight flight to the warehouse nearest your home in San Francisco. So your piece shines a spotlight on this relationship between Amazon and the U.S. 
Postal Service, particularly the information that was new in your story is that Amazon is actually shipping USPS packages on its planes, on the planes it leases or, or owns. Why is it doing that? So Amazon has this growing network of cargo airplanes that it's using in these cases to move its packages quickly between certain key transportation hubs. Those planes, you know, unload the packages, then go to a truck. That truck eventually goes to your home. But planes are very expensive to fly and run, especially a huge and growing network of them. When I first discovered that Amazon and the Postal Service had this relationship, that was my same question. I was like, why have they been doing this? And as I spoke to other experts, they said that it's likely to offset some of the costs of running this large shipping network. The Postal Service doesn't have its own aircraft or air fleet, so it is for decades contracted with outside air carriers in order to transport its mail by air in cases where it needs to be flown somewhere. Amazon, it seems, has been one of those carriers, at least for the last two or so years. So in certain situations where, say, Amazon has some cargo that it needs to transport from Florida to Texas, but it isn't enough to fill up the whole plane, it will also sell some of that space to the Postal Service. Mm. I feel like the the undercurrent in a lot of th these stories and the reasons why you seem to care a lot about logistics and the reason why I find it so interesting is these are the greatest examples of just the advantages that Amazon, the physical advantages that Amazon has amassed as it has grown so large. Like, how could any other company replicate this logistics network that they've built, right? Is that, is that kind of like the 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 upshot of, of why we kind of keep focusing on these efforts? Yeah. I mean, the reason why I've been drawn to these logistics stories is I am always fascinated by the way that tech companies and things that you mostly interact with through some page on the internet, the physical impacts that they can have in the world. And I think Amazon is... a phenomenal and fascinating example of this. Amazon's kind of uh, push into transportation all stemmed from this one legendary moment in 2013 where they weren't able to deliver a lot of packages in time for Christmas because USPS and FedEx and all the shipping partners they normally partner with were overloaded. Um, so Amazon decided, oh, we want to own our own delivery capacity and expand that out. But part of the issue is that a company like Amazon has very different uh, delivery capacity needs based on the season. During peak season, the holiday shopping season, uh, Amazon needs way, way, way more transportation and delivery capacity than any other part of the year. But when you're building your own network, that means it has to kind of have inherent flexibility built into it. So you'll see this in Amazon's trucking network in its last mile. And now you're starting to see it in its uh, air transportation network where you have to have the ability to scale it up and have those planes all full of Amazon cargo completely when it is having a bunch of orders on Prime Day or during the holiday shopping season. But during the rest of the year, you still have access to that big capacity and you can sell it to retailers or the postal service. And Amazon has already started doing this on the ground with the trucking network through a program called Amazon Freight, where it offers, you know, 
uh, a Dollar General or whoever can say, oh, I want to tap into Amazon's delivery network. And they have the capability to do that because it's, you know, the summer. They're not moving that many packages. Right. Well, because of your reporting, I now pay attention on various highways to when I'm driving next to an Amazon truck. I'm not, When I look towards the skies on those summer nights, I'm now going to be looking for those that, that smiley face logo on, on an airplane. So thanks so much, Paris. Thanks, Corey. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. A big thank you to Keenan Kush for producing today's episode. Have a great weekend, everybody.